Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig, and today we're bringing you part two of our interviews from Food on the Edge 2019 that took place in Galway, Ireland. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful symposium on the future of food and on migration. Our first guest um, shows how broadly food reaches across the continents because we're going to be um, talking to uh, Josh Nyland, uh, who has a, a restaurant called St. Peter in um, Sydney, Australia. And uh, we've eaten in his um, his restaurant, and it's wonderful. Is, he, he has such a reputation. He's 30 years old. Yes. He has a reputation like he's been in the top kitchen in the world for the last 20 years. Yeah, and his new book will make you really look a second or third or fourth or fifth time about how, what you thought you knew about cooking fish. Anyhow, here's um, our dear friend Josh Nyland. When we were last in Australia and looking for the best restaurants to visit. Sydney. One, one thing, one kept climbing to the top of the heap. And I wonder if you can get a clue when I tell you that it's called St. Peter. <laughs> jo- Josh Nyland, who, who with his lovely wife founded this restaurant about five years ago, Josh? Oh, we're, we're three. Three. Three, 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 years three, three, three years ago. And uh, <laughs> hey, the, the, the interesting thing is the day, the day we came to visit you, we had been to the Sydney fish market and we had been so outrageously disappointed by the yeah. amazing crowd and what didn't look like very good product. And you, you told us that right. you, you, you had decided there was another way to go about getting your fish. And that was a part of a whole new thing that you were doing at St. Peter. So wh- why don't you begin the story at the beginning? Yeah. Well, yeah, to begin with where we left off, um, I mean, we uh, we still do loosely work with the with the Sydney fish market. Uh, the only difference now is, is that I've got my name uh, down on the auction floor, so we can purchase a little bit more direct and we can be a little bit more specific with, with the actual fish that we're taking. So we don't buy from a wholesaler now, um, which is great because we've kind of become our own wholesaler. Um, so uh, 18 months ago, I, I took a space that was about five doors up the road from uh, where the restaurant is uh, on Oxford Street in Paddington. And uh, it was an idea born by my wife and I that we would call our place Fish Butchery. Um to give ourselves a little bit of room because, as you both know, St. Peter is so small. Um, it's a 34-seat restaurant, um, and we're limited in terms of our infrastructure. And, you know, given the popularity of the restaurant early on, we just ran out of room. So we, we decided to take the space, uh, offer retail fish uh, that, you know, you can take a bit of food away and you can dine in. Um but as well as that, we became our own wholesaler to the restaurant, but as well a wholesaler to some restaurants in Sydney. So it's a completely new learning experience for me. But the main agenda was to work with our fishermen closer so that we could take slightly more fish than what we'd been taking so that we could you know, not only support these great fishermen that we're working with, but also give the um, local audience in Paddington um, some better quality fish that they could be cooking at home as well as coming to the restaurant. So, um, well, that's yeah, sort of, very, very that, lucky now. That sort of leads us to uh, one of the reasons we're talking to you is you have a book out, um, The Whole yeah. Fish Cookbook, uh, which... Yeah, I've been busy. You've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we ought to mention, we just actually saw you in... Um, uh, Galway, Ireland, because you were a speaker for the yeah. Food on the Edge program uh, symposium there. Yeah. And and what did you talk yeah. about there? Tell yeah, so, yeah, it was a good edge. speech, by the Food way. On the I edge was, yeah, I no, thanks. <laughs> Food on the Edge was yeah part of uh, one part of the trip that I'm on right now. Like right now, I find myself sitting in New York, which I've you know the first time 
ever to go to New York. Oh, now. really? And, and I'm on this, yeah, and it's my first trip, you know, away from my my wife and my three kids and oh. the two businesses, and, and it's a full month um, of travel, which is really, you know, it's wonderful, but it's, um, you know, at times it's been exhausting and, you know, challenging, but um, it's been really positive and and in terms of the global perspective, like there's a lot of love for what we're doing at the moment. So, I mean, the book and the conversation at Food on the Edge uh, was was to begin the conversation around how poor the handling is with fish and bringing a little bit of, uh, I suppose, immediate um, resolution to some of those negatives that we have in, in processing of fish at the moment. I feel like one thing that, you know, across the world we do poorly is handle fish uh, in, in a market space or, or in a, you know, production in a restaurant, um, wherever we may be. But the fact that we continue to wash a fish once it comes out of the water, um, you know, I've never understood the logic of, you know, taking a fish, scaling it, gutting it, and then washing it in water. Um, <laughs> just because a fish was in water doesn't mean it should ever go back into water. Um, I mean, I like tap to, water. I like to, yeah, and I mean, I like to put the question to you both. Like, have you ever walked into a meat butchery anywhere in the world and see them wash a cut of beef or wash <laughs> a cut of lamb? It's like that's just, that wouldn't be, that's not common practice at all. Um, and, you know, given that that's not done, then there is, a very good shelf life that you can have with meat um, as opposed to fish which is perceived as being this fragile ingredient that has a three to four day shelf life and after that so much ammonia is built up in the fish and becomes mm -hmm. fishy um, that you know there's we end up just keep capturing fish so that we have a four day window of utilization and if we don't use it then it's wasted so what I'm saying is if it's handled correctly and, you know, you don't wash it and you handle it dry and you put precedence on, you know, the majority of the fish instead of just half of the fish. And we'll stop take, we'll start, we'll start taking fewer fish from the water. We'll have a significantly more, like a longer shelf life and the quality will be tremendous as opposed to what we're dealing with right now. Let me let me just clarify something that you you sort of slid you slid by, yeah. which is part of your concept yeah. and which is part of the title of your book, because you, you're you're yeah. not only making sure the whole fish is dry, but you're using all the all the yeah. bits of it, and and it was quite a, right. it was quite quite amazing to talk to the people who heard you speak in in Galway, and. They said, Josh is changing the way we think about cooking fish. And that, that's pretty, yeah, sen that's pretty, sen that's pretty <laughs> sensational for a young man who's, what, you must be now be 25 years old? Oh, a bit older, but thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> but, um, I'm 31. But, but, <laughs> 31, wow. But these are some of the, these are some of the top chefs in the world. Saying this exactly. young, this young, no, been, young man Josh has revolutionized the way we think about preparing and cooking fish. That must make you feel I'm pretty very, smart. Yeah, huh? I mean, I'm, I've been spoiled to be able to converse with so many wonderful people. Even just yesterday, getting the opportunity to sit on Blue Hill Farm and talk to Dan Barber about vegetables and, you know, get to, discussed with him about fish and I got to do a, a presentation for just over an hour with the whole team at Blue Hill on how I process fish and how they can implement some of the, you know, suggestions that I'm kind of offering uh, with regards to taking, you know, a, a round fish, like a whole round fish and, and the previous perception of what could be taken usually sits with a yield of 45 to 50%, uh, which is usually in the form of the fillet. And then what I'm saying is, is you can get anywhere between 90 and 95% utilization, uh, from a fish. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna suggest that I'm the first person to ever use the whole fish. Eastern cultures, you know, Middle Eastern and African cultures have celebrated the whole fish for centuries. And I feel like, um, that was born more out of necessity and more out of the fact that they purchased something and why would you throw half of the fish in the exactly fish? but how does, does that how does the affinity with fish in their eyes translate to a western palate 
I feel like American, Australian, the UK and Europe, um, the, the Western nations of the world, like we, we don't find great desirability in eating fish eyes and eating the head and eating, you know, the organs of a fish. Um, you know, it's very challenging. It's very confrontational for a lot of, um, you know, a lot of average customers, you know, in those parts of the world to, to find those items delicious. And so that's really the agenda of the book to suggest that there are some Western applications and also some suggestions that by you, by thinking of fish more as meat, then we can, you know, start thinking more broadly about fish. And so we're not just limited to two fillets and, you know, a tail and yeah. a head. It's, you know, there is so much more to a fish than just two fillets. So. Josh, t- t- tell, tell our listeners a story of when, when you went up to Sydney t- to meet a chef restaurateur there because you wanted to work for him so you took the train to Sydney uh, I think for the for the first time and you told us the story yeah yeah um, I mean I yeah I grew up about two and a half hours north of Sydney uh, and I met this gentleman his name was Peter Doyle um, and uh, you know one of the pioneers of you know modern Australian cooking in Australia I always like to think of Peter as the Thomas Keller of Sydney um, he'd probably be flattered to hear me say that, but, um, <laughs> you know, he, he was, you know, a gentleman and like so humble and never going, you know, to try to, you know, tell the world what he was doing. It was more just he went about his work very calmly and, you know, a huge amount of humility and, and, you know, he, he's a fantastic person. But I met him at a cancer foundation, uh, lunch that I was cooking at. Um, as a as a very young apprentice with the restaurant that I was at, and also I was speaking at it because I had a you know ch- I, I had a childhood cancer when I was growing up, and I had the opportunity to speak at this particular uh, foundation lunch, and Peter was also cooking there, and uh, after I'd spoken and we finished the day, he said to me, you know, you should come check out the restaurant and come and have a meal with us one day, and I said, oh, I'd love to, and so the next day I had a day off. Uh, and so I took the, you know, the two hour train trip from where I was, uh, at home to, to the city. Um, and I, I went straight to this restaurant, S restaurant, and, uh, I walked in 10 minutes early for my booking and they put me on the best table they had. And Peter came out and couldn't believe that I had come the very next day because <laughs> I think it was only about 16 hours previous. Uh, that we'd had the conversation of you should come to the restaurant one day and um, <laughs> you know I was there the very next day and you know 15 courses or 16 courses later um, <laughs> and they'd fed me so well and looked after me so well um, Peter came out and said to me would you like to work with us and I said oh I'd love that and I'd, oh, wow. I'd love to do that and I went home to my mum and dad as a you know a 16 year old um apprentice and said all right i'm moving to sydney i'm gonna go and work with peter doyle at s and my mother said there's no way you're leaving <laughs> so um i had to put that opportunity on the shelf um so i stayed in where i was in the hunter for another six months and then when i turned 17 mum and dad you know were confident that i was on the right path and i was you know making the right decision and i called peter and i said can i have that job now and he said that they just won restaurant of the year and everybody wanted to work with them, so there was no space. Um, so I found myself in another another couple of kitchens before I managed to finally get to that restaurant. And when I did, it ended up being one of the best experiences that I've had anywhere in any kitchen. Um, and Peter really opened the doors for a lot of other kitchens that I ended up getting to work in, uh, one of them being Fish Face. Um, in Darlinghurst, which is a really small, beautiful fish restaurant that's no longer there. But a lot of my, um, yeah, I suppose the nuts and bolts and the basics of my cooking, um, especially with fish, uh, came from. And, and really just how to, yeah, how to work a stove, like, and how to, you know, be efficient and how to be organized and how to lead a team. Um, all of those skills came from, came from Stephen and working at Fish Face. So, now that, that, yeah. that was Hodges, right? Now, did he did he not yeah, one, Stephen, did, yeah, did he not one time have a restaurant called Pier? Yeah, Pier yeah, with Greg Doyle. So I, him, I, Greg, have, I have him a, and Greg I, had Pier restaurant. I have a picture of Anne talking to P- 
to Steve Hodges at Pierre Restaurant, yeah, and they're yeah. they're pointing at each other. Wow, <laughs> would have been a very young, skinny Stephen cooking in those days. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And we we had that green yabi. Where what was that? I don't remember. Oh, it, which one? It was green. I thought it was very blue. Was it blue? I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't remember that far back. I can re- I can remember. The I remember. Fo- I can remember the photograph. Like I I had this feeling that this um, shellfish was a friend of mine because of its color, and I had a hard time eating it. Wow. So anyhow, uh, John. No, I mean like Pier Pier and um, Pier and Fish Face had some of the most iconic city dishes on their menus. You know, like beautiful crab omelets and, oh, and yeah. like a fish with potato scales and. An ocean trout parcel wrapped in fillet pastry and a nice fish curry, fish and chips. Like they were, they were really they set the standard uh, in Sydney for the way, not only the way we consume fish, but by the way we handle and um, purchased fish. I mean, you you both would know of Neil Perry. I mean, he's, yeah, we know, we he is talked one of recently, the founding yeah. fathers of Australian cuisine. You know, like he's you know an iconic man, but. He and Stephen Hodges and John Sussman and Greg Doyle, all those guys, at a time, um, you know, early on in the 90s, even in the in the late 80s, you know, where they had made the decision to go direct to the fishermen and cut out the middleman and get that fish, get the best fish they could in the country, um, sent to an airport, then, you know, they would drive their cars to the airport, pick up the fish, put it in their car, and then drive back to the restaurant. And, I mean, people talk about the work that I do now as being game-changing and, and, you know, quite unique and special and everything. And it's only through these kind of people that, you know, that evolution can happen because, you know, you can't, you can't age an old fish. You can't use a fish that's, you know, hasn't been killed correctly or handled correctly uh, and then suggest that it's a sustainable approach in utilizing the whole fish. It's it's got to be a holistic kind of approach. It needs to encompass everything, through from wastage to how the fish was handled and killed and stored, and you know its shelf life, and and obviously maximizing the output of a product which does have a yield of ninety five percent. And to suggest otherwise is completely foolish. Now, how how do you think people are going to be able to learn to 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 use your methods? Based on the based on your book, um, I mean, I think you know, given that the book has half half of it suggests uh, like there's a topic more around the knowledge uh, of of what I believe is a slightly a better way of of uh, handling and processing fish, and then the other half uh, is made up of sixty recipes. Um, the recipes, obviously, I'm very proud of and very you know happy to get. My kind of some of my dishes down on in a book, but I feel like the priority of the book, and and I suppose even if it was twenty five percent that people engaged with suggests about this uh, drier handling, um, and and I don't mean to dry a fish out, and I don't mean that we're talking about jerky, uh, and we're not trying to take the life out of a fish and just dry it out. I'm talking about you know not putting water or ice in direct contact with a fish once it's killed and out of the water. Um, at which point then, you know, this dry handling can give you a shelf life, you know, on some species of fish, like your tunas, the swordfish, Spanish mackerel, you know, larger, more oily fish. I'm suggesting that there's a potential shelf life with no use of salts or preservatives of up to one month. So my... That's that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah, And my hope and desire for people reading the book is to actually, you know, read it. Like, read the part about handling and storage and and try to take on board, you know, the concept of not washing it, um, you know, changing those habitual routines that as a chef you follow very strictly because of a mentor that you've had that has suggested a way to do it. Um, I just feel like we just need to just stop the way the wheel's spinning. The wheel has only ever spun a certain way, and we need to now just stop and look at it and consider just how much fish we are wasting um, through this poor handling. Um, and, and tell us well, what some of the other... Uh, tell us um, 
Josh, what are some of the other big mistakes that you point out in your book that people, their mistakes and misconceptions uh, about handling yeah. fish and cooking fish? Um, I think it's like, uh, to, to speak a little bit more out of a restaurant and, and more in a, I suppose, a domestic ki- uh, or kitchen, um, you know, when, when purchasing fish, obviously try to, try to communicate a little bit more with, with the people who are selling you fish um, so that you can try to understand maybe what's best, like what, what they're trying to sell you uh, that's maybe just come in. Um, you know, you don't always have to take a wet fish from them. You can ask somebody to scale the fish for you and gut the fish, but don't put it in water. And then you can take that fish home. And if it does have a little bit of residual scale or a little bit of blood in the cavity, then it's no great, you know, it's no huge task to just wipe it out with some paper towel. Um, even if you wanted them to fillet it, just take the fillet off without washing it. Um, once you get it home, take it out of the plastic that, you know, potentially it's been wrapped in. And I mean, plastic's another enemy of fish because it creates an insulated environment where it kind of sweats and um, speeds up that, you know, ammonia kind of aroma around fish. So, you know, to take a fish out of the wrapping that you've got, put it on a wire rack, like a cake rack or a trivet, uh, and put it on a dinner plate and, and put it in your fridge. Just let the fan in your fridge blow over the skin of the fish so that it dries it out a little bit. And by drying the skin out, then what you end up with is something that's going to behave far better in the pan. You're going to have something that can crisp up. You can get a really nice crisp skin. But as well, if you do leave it in there for a day or so, you'll find that you can take a percentage of moisture out of the fish, which means then you can articulate the flavor of the fish more because you've reduced the water content and you've increased the fattiness of the fish. So it's quite thinking. You also believe that people put too much acid on, on their fish. Yeah, I, I mean, like when you think about like fish and you look at it on, I suppose, uh, I suppose a slightly geekier, <laughs> more fish nerd <laughs> approach. Like, I mean, all fish have an organic compound in them, and it's called trimethylamine. And when a fish dies, then it converts into trimethylamine oxide. Right. And through that trimethylamine oxide breaking down, it converts into ammonia. And ammonia is what we know as fishy fish. And the only way to offset ammonia is through the use of acidic ingredients. Hence why we've got a repertoire dating back centuries celebrating acidic compounds with fish, whether it's a hollandaise sauce or a beurblanc or, you know, even the acidity of a tomato um, you know, recipes throughout Mediterranean cuisine and French cuisine all suggest acidic-based ingredients for fish. And that's not because it's not delicious. Like, it's absolutely delicious, and I'll be the first to, you know, put tartare sauce with my fish and chips. But um, it's, you know, it's just fascinating that we have built these recipes with the foresight that ultimately we will be needing to use those acidic ingredients to mask the ammonia that has built up through or handling. Right. And so you you say instead... (laughs) So through aging, through the maturation of fish and good handling, what we do find is um, that fish actually develop glutamates in the actual muscle. And glutamates basically represent savouriness. And that that level of umami that can be developed is incredible. And when you start developing savouriness in fish, then you can start taking a different path and pairing fish with different flavors as opposed to the standard flavors that we know. That's amazing. And you, you have these represented in your book, so people will have different yes. paths to follow. And, and, and listeners, if, Correct. if, if and you... And also different methods to follow, because the book, I, I, we made sure that we chapterized the, um, the recipes with methods of cookery, because mm-hmm. I feel uh, self-confidence, is lacking with fish, especially in a domestic uh, level, because it, it is really challenging. Like, fish cookery is, is challenging, and it, it's made challenging through uh, unknown what a good fish is, um, h- how to cook it. Like, I mean, we all can gain access to a mackerel, I'm pretty sure. Like, hopefully, we can all kind of get our hands on a mackerel. But how, how do we cook a mackerel, or how do we prepare it in a way that is delicious? Um, and and is going to give us a great experience. Um, 
and I feel like just grilling it whole on the bone uh, doesn't do it justice. Um, even though it's an easy method of cookery, um, it doesn't do the flavour of the mackerel justice. So I suggest um, methods of cookery for both Atlantic and Pacific um, fish uh, throughout. So it's by no means an Australian-centric book. Uh, it does offer you know, other species of fish that will hopefully tick a box for somewhere in the world. Uh, Guess what we're having for dinner tonight? We're having saltfish belly, and I, and I dried it off with paper wow. towels. Do I get a prize? <laughs> Amazing. Good job. And well, I mean, when I look at swordfish, I see a pig. So I'm, ho- I'm hoping that you're looking at that swordfish belly thinking that you're working with some pork belly. Yeah. So, I mean, when you start thinking of fish more as meat, you know, it, it opens up Pandora's box, and then it's an endless... You know, it's an endless repertoire of dishes that you can play with. So, it's really funny uh, when when I walk into the store. That when I walk into my local Whole Foods market shopping, and I'm shopping for fish, yeah. I'm, I'm heading for the fish counter. They're telling me they've got swordfish belly before I get to their counter. <laughs> they save it all for him. That's right. <laughs> they, they, they save it for me because because fishmongers fishmongers all around the world they're proud. They're like proud people. Why would you devote your life to one thing? and wake up really early and, and, you know, be cold and be in a wet environment and not be passionate about what you're doing. So I feel like at times we're, we're, not, we're not giving, you know, these people credit enough. Like, I mean, these people are, yeah, dedicating their lives to, to one particular protein and one that's quite fragile at that. So, you know, communicate what you, you want from them and communicate, like, what would you be eating tonight? And then ultimately we end up getting a better product and, and you know, we have better experiences. So. Well, Josh, I wish we could talk endlessly with you because I always learn something. I know, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, oh. yeah. And um, I, I often think of uh, what a fabulous meal we had in, in your restaurant. Um, and St. Peter, <laughs> um, did I tell you that there was a fish that my grandmother used to make called St. Peter's fish? And she yeah. called, yeah, she called it that because it, she said it had a little cross on, on its cheek. Oh, wow. I don't know what fish that wow. was. Yeah, I don't know what fish it was. But anyhow, um. I mean, San Pietro, San Pietro is John Dory, so I mean, that's part of the yeah, reason why we call, um, St. Peter, St. Peter. It's the patron saint of fishermen. Okay. The other name for John Dory. So, right. Yeah. I that's thought, my, that's no, probably it. That was I thinking you named it after me. Josh and Island, the, the, the book is the Whole Fish Cookbook, and I don't know, that there's anybody who knows more about fish than you do right at the moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh and, there's uh, plenty. There's plenty out there. I'm very, um, very happy to talk to you again. It's been lovely. Tra- yes. Tra- travel, travel safely. Say hello to your lovely wife when you get there and rub, rub the nose of the paparazzi dog. Oh, and one last thing. <laughs> uh, an- another tip about fish. Um, I've made it a point when I'm buying fish, to make sure that the fish is smiling and has a happy death. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Thank you both. Okay, Josh. Uh, have much best. success for your book, and it was it was good listening to you in, in um, Galway and Food on the Edge as well. Thank you so much Thank for taking so much. the time on your book tour to talk to us. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank have you. a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. We're now going to take a little hop from uh, the Australian continent to the continent of Africa, uh, talking first to this uh, really ingenious and devoted and well-spoken and it's just the most interesting woman I've met in a long time, uh, Selassie, who's going to talk to us about Ghana. And then right after that, we're going to move on to a, an Irish chef uh, who's in 
uh, South Africa talking about a very important program, and that will be Liam Tomlin. Our next guest is really going to be perfect for the theme of this conference, which is migration. Chef and founder of Medunu. 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 And uh, she gave a, a browsing presentation today. People were jumping out of their seats to applaud her. Um, uh, so, Lassie, give us, we know your story, but our listeners don't. Give us a, a brief understanding of how you went from... Uh, here to there. <laughs> okay. uh, sure. Um, I was born in Ghana, and um, my family moved to the U.S. due to political instability in Ghana. And um, I, after school, I ended up working for the United Nations, even though I had a passion for food. And uh, about 10 years later, I went to culinary school. I went to the Culinary Institute of America and um, learned some of the rules about cooking so that I could apply them to all the amazing African cuisines that I'd eaten and um, to also understand which rules I could break and um, how to break them properly. Um, but I, I basically I feel that um, food is a way of bringing people together and through cuisine, culture, and community, we can um, support economy, create sustainability, and um, deal and support the environment as well. No, you established a, um, we're calling it a, a restaurant, an event center, a, a, a place for gathering and learning, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's a space that um, we bring people together, um, bring them to the table, and use that space also as a, um, just as a, a place of community um, to engage and have conversations around food. Now, who actually gets in touch with you at this place? Um, most of the clients, I would say, in terms of the uh, food that we provide are um, Ghanaians that have lived abroad, middle-class Ghanaians um, and expatriates that um, live in Ghana. The One of the challenges we have is that local food is uh, oftentimes twice as expensive as imported food, and so... Using local ingredients actually means that you limit yourself to a certain population that can come to your table. Um, due to that, we've actually started doing more outreach in the terms of a nonprofit called Medinu Institute, and the idea is to work towards creating social change, behavior change, um, to get a critical mass asking questions about what we're doing. Now, we... we naively think of Ghana and before that the Gold Coast as being the world's largest supplier of cocoa. But what's the food larder in general like in Ghana? What, what, what kinds of things do Ghanaians find in the market and you find in the market to, to make into one delicious food? Um, we have a lot of um, tubers, I would say. Um, we have uh, cocoa yams. Some people call that taro. Um, we have uh, yams, which are different than the sweet potatoes in the U.S. Um, we have sweet potatoes as well. We have uh, cassava um, among some of the, the tubers that are really important in our diet. There are staple um, tropical trees such as plantain um, that give us... Um, beautiful um, starches that we have in our diets. There are lots of greens that come from all these um, tubers that we talked about. So we're not only eating the tubers, but using the leaves as well in our diet. Um, we're part of the country. It's right on the, on the ocean, so we have access to fresh fish. Um, while we have um, other things such as um, snails that are in our diet, we have goat. We have um, a lot of ancient grains such as sorghum, millet and fonio that um, make up the traditional diet. And I think we do have a few varieties of local rice, um, which is quite important. And I think that um, as we get modernized, we're looking for quick solutions and um, straying away from some of these ingredients that take a little bit more time. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it needs to be a two-way dialogue, how to create supply and demand around these ingredients. I think I read somewhere recently that someone who was a food guru, I guess, 
was saying Africa is the next exciting continent when it comes to food. W would you agree with that, or is there more that needs to happen? I, I think that um, I think for, the, for many years we've all been kind of every year we think that Africa is going to be the next big thing. Um, I think we're getting closer to that. Um, sometimes, sadly, I think it's because there's not that many other continents left for us to explore, but it's like the last frontier. Um, and I think people will be pleasantly surprised to see the richness, the diversity that's there. Um, and I, I, I really welcome everybody to sort of step out of their comfort zone and be curious. You actually explored... Um, Pan-African trends, though, their um, traditions, didn't you? Yes. I, um, prior to working as a chef, I worked for the United Nations and did a lot of travel around the continent. And so I really got to not only eat a lot, but I got to see a lot about um, the different culture, food cultures um, around the, the continent. And um, sadly, I think even within the continent, we don't know what other right. communities that use the same ingredients are doing with those ingredients. So um, I love getting the opportunity to share sort of best practices or just flavors from other parts of the continent within the continent itself. Do you know Kwame? Oh, no, I won't. Gucci, I can't pronounce it. He's from Nigeria, and um, uh, he interviewed him. He wrote a book, Notes from a Young Boy. You know it. He's fabulous, by the way. Yes, okay. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a colleague, a friend, uh, someone that I know um, as well. Yes. I was just going to say that, I mean, his mother, I guess he was a handful, sent him back to his Nigerian grandfather specifically to learn respect he learned a whole lot else, didn't he? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's actually one of the the, um, the things I always joke about with a lot of my uh, African friends because um, growing up, whenever we were misbehaving, our parents used to always threaten us of, <laughs> to send us back. Um, but it's actually interesting. I had a friend, and I was telling her this exact same thing, that my parents used to threaten me when I got, you know, I would misbehave. And she was like, she got the same, but she's from Somalia. <laughs> so <laughs> it's actually interesting. We all, we all got that threat. <laughs> but it's actually a wonderful place. And I think that, um, you know, I, I tell my dad now, like, you know, you shouldn't have used it as a punishment because, in <laughs> fact, it's actually something that people need to learn to love um, to be able to go home. Yeah. A suggestion for you in terms of what, what to do with the ingredient larder that you have. Mm -hmm. We read this wonderful book by a chef from Senegal. Pierre? I, I'm sure it must be Pierre. Pierre how, how, many, how many books about cooking in Senegal can there be? <laughs> <laughs> but I wondered, since you, had, since you have heard of it, I thought maybe you hadn't heard of it, and that might give you some ideas, but you've already got those. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, though the ingredients may be slightly you know, foreign to you, I think that the easiest way to approach them is to replace them with something you already know. So if you want to look at replacing rice in your grain bowl, why not use fonio? Um, why not use sorghum? Why not use millet? If you're using um, spinach, why not replace it with another type of green? One that I think we eat a lot because we do a lot of, um, I guess, uh, no, no waste cooking is sweet potato greens. You know, those are edible. Um, and uh, trying to use things like that. And they're easy swaps for what you're already doing at home. Well, we're, 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 we're with you. We, we eat the radish greens. We eat the beet greens, the ones I the ones I, I pick over to all the ones on the shelf to get the ones that have the nicest looking greens, because because they are good, and they are intriguing, but they can look kind of unfortunate sometimes too. I like that you said there's no ugly produce in, in Africa. Yeah, I think you know these are some of the things is um, in in. In much of sub-Saharan Africa, our challenge is actually post-harvest loss. It's not post-consumer loss. Um, whereas in the West, it's really post-consumer loss where you're losing a lot of, of food because, you know, whether it's ugly or whether you bought too much at the farmer's market, you were too excited, or whether it sat in your fridge a little too long. So it's, it's really for us, it's about um, how do we reduce the waste um, from, um, on, on the farm side and the processing side um, in terms of the infrastructure of the roads or in terms of the lack of refrigeration for storage. Th that's where we're really losing a lot of our food. 
as, as we close the interview, let's, let's, let's give you a chance to give Ghana a, a tourist welcome. What, what is it that people can expect if they come and visit your country? Will, will they have a good time? Will they learn something new? What, what will happen? Let's change their lives. Um, this year is actually what Ghana is calling the year of the return. So um, it's been 400 years since slavery started, and um, the government has made a, a big welcome, um, particularly to African Americans, and asking people to come home. Um, I think that some of the elements um, are more of the historical uh, elements, like visiting some of the Elmina castles and some of the the, the, the ports where there's a, a deep history, sometimes a bit uncomfortable to be in touch with, where um, slaves were kept to send out. But there's also nat national, natural um, wee falls. There's um, Kakum National Park. We've got Mole Park in the north, um, which has got a safari um, park there where you can see a lot of the elephants alongside the shea butter trees where the shea butter comes from. So um, I think there's a little bit of everything for um, people. The music scene is also quite exciting. Uh, so there's something for everybody. Bravo, bravo, Selassie. I, w I wish we could have recorded the reception that you got when you completed your talk. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your co On behalf of all those attending FOTI 2019 and those who didn't, you, you brought a new flavor, a lot of new information, a lot of new ins insight, and a lot of adventure into the program. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Okay, that's good. You're a good spokesperson. <laughs> you must have been doing a lot of that. And just listen. And just said something off the air that was very interesting. I have to let him talk sometimes, <laughs> and and I feel very fortunate today because I'm, I'm talking to one of the presenters at Foji 2019, and a story that. It's nothing short of inspirational. Liam Tomlin, tell us, tell us the story of the young lady who got all the way from South Africa to New York State, and how, how that happened, and what that's meant to her, and what it will mean to her in the future. Um, thank you. Um, the young girl we're talking about is a, a, a lady called TK. And she works for a group of, um, that I'm very fortunate to work with in South Africa. Uh, it's a company called Singita, who are very um, top-end game lodge um, company. And they've got properties through South and East Africa. So there's properties in Kruger National Park and Sabi Sands. We've got a uh, lodge in Zimbabwe, another in Rwanda has just opened, and then seven or s more in Tanzania. Um, and Singita, even though it's in the luxury, um, in the luxury business, the main focus is about conserving land, conservation of land and wildlife above and over profit. And it's also about um, empowering communities and making the communities in those areas much better. And we've got a culinary school in Kruger National Park, and we also have one in Tanzania, where we give young kids an opportunity to come and do a London City and Guilds through Singita. Um, so it's a year course, and we offer them full-time employment at the end of it. Um, not necessarily if we don't have enough spaces within Singita, we'll put them in a, um, a lodge of the same sort of standard within, you know, somewhere close to their community. And these are kids who've gone to school, but they've come, they come from very um, rural areas often with no water, sometimes no electricity. Some of them walk, you know, kilometers to school every day, back and forth. So the opportunity for them is, is amazing. Um, Singita and some of our guests sponsor these students through the year. So supplying them with uniforms, accommodation, food, knives, everything, and obviously they get paid. 
Um, and TK was, um, you know, out of, I think, every class, there's always a superstar. TK was a superstar in the year she was there, and she came as part of the course as they come up to Cape Town to visit um, my restaurants there and to work in them. But TK also managed to get an internship with Dan Barber in Blue Hills in New York, um, and it was a very sad story. Two, two weeks before she was departing, her mum passed away. So TK became the the head of the family because her father had passed away several years before. And TK's mum's sister, so TK's auntie, had also passed away. So TK was in charge of um, not only her siblings, but also her... Um, her mum's sister's siblings. So, but TK decided she still wanted to go to New York, and off she went. Um, and Dan Barber said she was probably one of the best he'd ever seen, and they, they take quite a few people from all over the world. Um, they offered her a full-time position, mm-hmm. which is very sad for, you know, obviously she, she couldn't take it because of her commitments, um, and our obligations back at home, but um, I've seen what you know what this travel and experience does to these young kids, and I think it's just fascinating. It's amazing. So you know, being here at Food in the Age with 30, 40 great chefs from around the world, um, I just thought it'd be a great idea to try and get something going where we can get a little. You see, the whole topic is about migration, so if we could help kids, not just from Africa or South Africa, but could be people in South America, could be people in Indonesia, could be wherever, um, who are probably less fortunate than us. If we could do a little migration program between some of the top chefs and expose these young kids to something that they won't necessarily see anywhere else. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I was about today. Well, you know, the, the young woman you were talking about uh, says that her experience uh, at, uh, um, at, at, at with um, Dan Barber changed her life altogether. Her, uh, what I really wish is that we had video because your video says so much just by focusing on the faces of these students and the transformation this was going to make in their life. They were so happy, and they were soaking it in, and it really was a huge difference in their lives. Someone has to pay the bills for all of this. And, Liam, you have a very successful group of restaurants in South Africa, mostly in Cape Town, I think. Time for a commercial, if you'd like. Um, we've, we've got um, five restaurants in Cape Town. Um, they all come under the Chef's Warehouse brand, and they're run by I've got a lot of very young, talented chefs who work for me. Um, some of them are a little bit older than others, and they've become partners in the business with me which allows me to do this sort of thing, allows me to go to Singita on a monthly basis, allows me to come to things like Food on the Edge. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that we've got, you know, for us it's all about the people and growing people and empowering people. And it's the same philosophy in Singita. It's very, very much the same. That's why I think the collaboration between Singita and Chef's Warehouse is works so well because we've, we've both got very similar... Um, philosophies when it comes to the people who work with us. Um, you know, Singita is very much family orientated, even though it's a huge business. Everybody's like family there. When you go there, you feel like you're part of a family. And I'd like to think we do the same in our restaurants also. I think it's very important. Well, thank you so much for your story. Thank you so much for joining us to tell it on the menu radio listeners. This is inspirational, but it's also a great place to go eat if you're a gourmet diner, so let's not forget that aspect of it as well. Sweetheart, do you have any more questions? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 
very inspired right now about the whole thing. You also said you want to go get a bite to eat, so 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 we'll go do that. Liam, 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 thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, we're, we're going to actually um, finish up by taking a, another big jump, this time into Europe and specifically to Milano, uh, one of our favorite Italian cities, um, talking to Ryan King, who introduced us to a, 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 a newsletter and a program and a, a dot com that I never even heard of, but I'm, I'm glad that I've learned about it. It's called FineDiningLovers.com, and um, he's going to tell you, and he told us all about this. And, and, and there's a little surprise in here, so so pay, pay attention for the surprise. You'll you'll never you'll never guess what it is, and I think you'll be amused by it. So wait, wait, wait for the special secret that's going to be revealed in Ryan's discussion. We, we just discovered that Piccolo Mondo is real. It happens not every day, but certainly frequently. Our next guest, Ryan King, told me that he grew up in Bradford and his father owns a pub in Huddersfield, which is where I was born. So we've been swapping accent stories. He kept his, I lost mine as fast as I could. But it just goes to show you the world is a very small place because here we are in a very small place called Galway Island. We're at a big event, of course, as you know, called Food on the Edge, 2019 version. And we're sitting with Ryan, interviewing him. And I don't know what we're going to interview him about, but Anne knows. (laughs) Yes, I was very impressed with the... Ryan's presentation um, at uh, today and um, oh, no, it was yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday, and but tell us what fine dining lovers is, Ryan. Okay, fine dining lovers is an international magazine. We're based online. Um, we started in 2011, and our idea is to sort of focus on the world of gastronomy. We actually want to be the leading voice in gastronomy. We want to speak about the chef community. We want to speak about ideas, innovations, techniques. Uh, we want to talk about all the amazing stories that, that are linked to this world of gastronomy that I know you two live and breathe as well. So that's Fine Dining Lovers, and I'm a journalist. I've been there since the beginning. Uh, I, I originally worked as a news journalist at the BBC, and for the last eight years I've been focusing on the world of food and chefs. Now, you were talking about um, chefs, following chefs, and so forth, and you also brought up another thought, which is the important issues of the day and how chefs are involved with these issues. We're talking in in the sense of sustainability, uh, food waste, um, uh, uh, hunger, whatever. Um, uh, I take it a step further, actually, and um, the other part of it is the mental health of chefs, uh, which gave rise to... um, sites such as um, uh, Chefs with Issues and so forth. And we personally have had experiences where um, good friends uh, interviews um, for, with chefs um, suddenly precipitated by dues of their hanging themselves. You know, so I mean, we came pretty, we've come pretty close to it. Um, but I, I want the whole subject to be more, I think, that to start with, chefs were surprised to find themselves as celebrities, and it opened a whole new ball game for them. I think that everything is shifting and has somewhat shifted already 
and I don't know the chefs themselves, even though they uh, support certain ideas and issues, are, I don't know that they're really prepared for the fact that I think the personal lives of these chefs is going to be subordinated entirely by public interest in the issues surrounding the whole industry. Um, could you agree, disagree, or whatever with this? I mean, I think anybody who focuses on the industry intently, anybody who looks at it from a, from a detailed perspective, notices there's some obvious disconnects in, in, in the professional life of chefs. I think just from a humanistic perspective, these are people who dedicate their whole life to nurturing, nourishing, caring for. I mean, it's almost an obsession for the guys we meet and the guys we speak to. Their kick comes from making sure other people are happy. And so for me, there's just this obvious disconnect when I know that Many chefs are maybe not having a good diet. Maybe they don't have a good sleeping pattern. Uh, they're running on adrenaline. Maybe they're taking painkillers to get through a shift. So my whole argument was that I think we use the word sustainable a lot. It's a buzzword. We almost use it too much because it loses its value then. And it already has lost its value because we apply it only to the, the supply chain. We apply it only to the ingredient. But we don't apply it to the humanistic element of the kitchen and that was the title of my presentation and, and really what I wanted to happen was that, that people start to use and understand the word sustainable from a human perspective because at the moment I think we, we speak about the sustainability of the carrot, the lamb, the zero kilometer supply chain, it's, you know, there's awards about sustainability for your production chain, uh, what you do with your waste, aquaponics, but yet when we want to apply that word to the human element, there's a real disconnect. Now you live in Milano, uh, why? The truth? You want the truth or you want the, the nice? The, the truth, the nice answer is that, you know, I got offered a job there, but the truth is I, I, I fell in love with an Italian girl. I mean, that's the truth of what happened. I came into work one day, I met an Italian girl, sat in reception. Um, I, I pretended to be the guide of the company I was working at, and I showed around the room, and, and I said, okay, let's go, you know, I'll come to Italy with you. And, and we did long distance for a long time. I was working as a news journalist at the BBC, very happy. I was on their trainee scheme, so I was learning a lot. I was working in radio, television, and online. I was very, very content. And I did probably four or five job interviews in Italy and turned them all down because I, I, I didn't want to leave. And then I came to this job interview about this new website launching. I had real ambitious perspective on the world of food. Food had quite, not quite exploded yet, so it was still quite a risky, risky gambit, but that's what we do for, for love. And, and I'm sure everyone's wondering, as soon as I moved there, it's the, it's the final test of a relationship, isn't it? Our relationship broke down in about six months. Um, it wasn't love. <laughs> it was an infatuation. But it led me to Italy in this amazing job. And, and I, I'm very much attracted to, to passion. And that can be, honestly, you, if you are passionate about buttons, I will sit and listen to you talk about buttons for for three hours. I'm really into passion. And what I've found in this industry is it's driven by passion. Sometimes that passion is used against chefs because people know that they're doing it for love. They're doing it for creativity and, and their, their need to, yeah. So sometimes it's used against them. But for me, that's what kept me, you know, even though the relationship stopped, even though I was sad, even though I was on my own in Italy and I didn't speak the language, I said, Actually, this is a world I really want to explore, and everybody I meet there is so passionate and engaging and creative that I'm learning an awful lot from that. So that's the, that's the true answer. Well, you know, the celebrity status of chefs has been um, a boon for the industry in that it has attracted all these people who would not otherwise consider this as a viable job or, or life's work. Um, but a lot of them think in terms of having their own television show, um, being in, invited for grand events, um, you know, if it all goes, other, well, not away, but if it's diminished, um, will we still have the attraction to all these young chefs or will they move on to something else, some other career? I mean, farming. <laughs> 
I mean, my first argument would be that the image that has been portrayed for a long time has not been the true image. So you can create an image and you can attract people with that image, but if on the first day they arrive, they realize that the image is actually a lie and they've just gone through four years of culinary school to, to focus on a job that's not the true, true ideal they were expecting, I don't think that's the right way of working. I think it's much better that there are some shows that come out that focus on the real aspect of what it's like to work. It's a labor-intense job to cook for people. It's, it's a physically demanding job. It's a... You've got to remain creative. You've got to be inhospitable for 10 hours a day to random strangers. is very tiring. So for me, I don't think it will diminish it if the image is, is made more realistic. I think, if anything, you sustain it for longer by being more open and truthful about what the profession is. What's your next story? How do you determine what you're going after next? I'm going to ask you. <laughs> the stories come from people, no? That's what I was always taught. Like, I was always taught that if you can't go outside into a village or into a town and meet some people and find a good story, then that, you're not doing journalism. And that's where stories come from, from interacting with people. And, and I get off on that. As I was saying earlier, I grew up in Huddersfield. I lived in a pub. All my life, I've been surrounded by community and people. And... One of the, probably the strongest lessons I ever learned as a news journalist was being dropped off in Bristol and said, go out and find a story. And the ones that did that were the ones that got the job, and the ones that didn't were the ones that got told to leave. So my next story is coming from you two, because I know you two spend your whole time traveling the world and speaking to creative people. So who should I speak to? What do you think I should do? Let's, let's do it now. You tell me. Yeah, see, but I find myself guilty of the same thing. I mean, I will immediately think of the, the latest star shelf. <laughs> Not really true. I mean, currently I'm into um, hunger relief and eliminating waste, food waste. So uh, I guess that's why I'm hot for these people who pursue these um, these goals in, in the industry. I think obviously sitting, you know, sitting at an event like this, it's really hard not to say, okay, that's a great story. I mean, how many wonderful speakers have gone on stage where you've both sat there and said, I got to grab them as soon as they come off stage. I can see some in this room now that I want to talk to. So yeah, I mean, if I'm really honest, my next stories will probably be direct from this event. I'd love to chat to Matt Stone, the guy from Australia. Did you see his talk about the, the sustainable restaurant that feeds itself? I think, I think that will be a really interesting conversation. I'd like to chat to Liam, the guy who had created this culinary college. Singer, is it? I can't remember the name. I don't want to, I don't want to ruin that. So. Yeah, and I think that's really inspiring. So, I, of course, I will focus on some of the stories from here, but I'm expecting you two to give me a story before this interview ends. We'll give you one, we'll give you one, right? we'll give, we'll give you one right now. It's called 412 Food Rescue, and it's, so, it's sort of like Uber in reverse. The, the, connection, the connection between people who have surplus food that they might just prefer not to throw away. Right, right, but right now, right now they, without 412 Food Rescue, they do. And an army of 412 Food Rescue heroes who make the connection by picking up the surplus food from, for example, a supermarket or a restaurant. And, and an app that, that says, this person over here could use that surplus food. And where are they based? 412 area code is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They now have equivalent programs in Cleveland and Philadelphia, which have been seeded by the people in Pittsburgh who started 412 Food Rescue to begin with. And this is why I ask you, because the best, I think honestly the best stories always come from interactions with, with other humans. And usually the person that tells you they don't have a story has the best story. I was always taught, the one who says, I, there's no story here, that's the one you spend an extra hour chatting with because they're the ones who have something, but they haven't realized it's a story yet. I really love meeting you, and I'm, I'm going to go see Matt Orlando too. Did we miss him yet? Uh, I think he's just coming on now, no? And, and if, you, if you're all about, like, taste from waste, Matt's the guy. Thanks so much, and uh, I hope to have many other conversations with you. Thank you very much.
Thanks, guys. Okay, thank you. Please send me an email when it comes out. Really we will, for sure. So there you have it. You spotted yeah, you know, it. You spotted the more it, we right? travel, the more we realize that uh, what a piccolo mondo, as we say. Yes. <laughs> that? How small the world is. And, uh, yeah. So I guess that's it for today, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You're running out of steam or what? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it was such an exciting week's program. We hope you enjoyed it and you'll join us again. More food on the edge from Ireland and a couple of other things next week so we'll hope you join us same place same time and until then bye bye